forward. And we're live. Let's go. All right, guys. We have an amazing discussion for tonight. It's so amazing that it's probably going to have to get cut down quite a bit. So I don't know if we're going to get a chance to do all of this tonight. But um, there's some amazing, incredible ideas I want to share with you. And I want you guys, you guys are going to share with me because I'm going to share with you a lot of different pieces of this week's Torah portion that, that we're going to dissect in a deep way um, based on the text. And we're going to learn some incredible insights. So um, this week's Torah portion is called Toldos. And Toldos means generations or descendants, offspring. And we are essentially in this week's Parsha deciding who is going to be the progenitor of the mission of Abraham. Who's going to carry that mission to the world and teach the world about the message that Judaism brought to the world. So we have to understand a little bit about, once again, we'll review what that message is, what's so unique about Judaism that Abraham brought to the world, and what is the mission of the Jewish people. So I just want to run through very, very quickly um, just some background from the last few weeks' parshas. I'm going to just go very quickly, okay? And then we'll jump right into this week's parsha. So from the beginning of the Torah, the very beginning, we talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we talked about the idea that after the sin of Adam, good and evil became mixed. Things became very confused. We lived in a we live in a world now, post Adam, where it's very confusing to know what's right and what's wrong. And there's a, everything's mixed up. There's spirituality that's mixed up in physicality and there's physicality that's mixed up in spirituality and there's good and there's bad in every experience and it's very hard to know what we're supposed to do with our lives. And the mission that was given to Adam was to go and to work the soil, to work the fields. That was the curse that Adam got. And the idea essentially is that we have to dig into the world of physicality in order to reveal the spirituality that's hidden in the world. And that becomes the mission of mankind is to find the sparks and the pieces of holiness and godliness that is now mixed into all sorts of bad things. So everything in this world, according to Kabbalah, has a shell that surrounds it, a shell of physicality or, or unholiness that surrounds the holy. And we have to break through those shells and connect to the purpose inside each experience. Things in this world can, can be done as an end in themselves, purely for the physical experience, or they can be done as a means to connect to spirituality and to connect to God. And that's our job is to sort of break through the shell and to connect to the deeper godliness that's hidden in each and everything. Okay, then we learned that a couple of different energies um, in Kabbalah, we learned about the energy of chesed and gevorah, which means giving and strength, kindness and strength. We talked about um, the flood, which was brought about because there was a generation without proper boundaries, too much kindness, too much chesed going beyond themselves which brought about too much water. And then we talked about the generation of Sodom, which was too much fire, which was not giving. You weren't allowed to do kindness, and it consumed itself. And we mentioned that Avraham is the energy of kindness, that he, Avraham, his whole mission was to do kindness for others. He had a soup kitchen in the desert. 
He's constantly passing through borders and boundaries, coming from one country to another. He's called Ha'ivri, the Ivri, which means Jew in Russian and Hebrew, and it means one who crosses over because he's constantly transcending borders and challenging authority. Then we have Yitzchak. Yitzchak is, represents Gvura, strength. And he is the ultimate self-control. He lives within boundaries. He never leaves the walls of Israel. His challenge, one of his challenges in his life is to sacrifice his life, which he does easily because he has no problem giving up everything for God. He's totally disconnected from this world. He um, he has a, a, this whole, in this week's Parsha, we learn about Yitzchak a little bit more. And he's constantly digging wells and to re reveal the water, water represents kindness, that's hidden underneath the surface. So he's, he's constantly accessing the hidden kindness using his strength. That's Yitzchak. And um, we learn that Avraham has a child who is the opposite, or who is an imbalance of his own energy. Avraham represents kindness, which is, which is overflow. And then he has a son, Yishmael, who is the father of the Arab nations. Yishmael is the forefather of uh, uh, Islam, attributes uh, him as their forefather, the son of Abraham. And Yishmael, uh, the Torah explains, is um, extreme kindness to the point of uh, some lack of boundary stealing and, and sexual immorality. And then... Um, in the end of at the end of last week's parsha, Yishmael and Yitzchak reconcile, and Yishmael returns to be part of the family. Uh, but he, in, in a sense, the heir of Avraham's mesh mission goes to Yitzchak and not to Yishmael. Even though Yishmael does bring monotheism to the majority of the world, Islam being the second largest religion in the world. Right, but um, but the mission of the specific unique task of Judaism goes to Yitzchak and not to Yishmael. Then Abraham has many other sons with Hagar, Yishmael's mother. Okay, this is just a cool background. I'd like to do a whole class on this sometime. Avram, after Sarah passes away, Avram remarries Hagar, who is Yishmael's mother, and has another, um, I believe, seven sons, six or seven sons, and. The Torah says he sent them to the east bearing gifts. And according to different commentaries, those were spiritual gifts. And some say that those sons went on to become the founders of Hinduism in India. And there are different allusions to this in the Vedic writings. There are some interesting connections that the Vedic, the, the Hinduism was apparently brought to India by these people called the Aryans who came from another place. Uh, bearing these spiritual teachings. So it could be that Avram, the name Avram the Torah says means Av Hamon Goyim, a father of many nations, could be the spiritual um, the spiritual uh, forefather of Islam and Eastern religions. And then in this week's Parsha, Yitzchak gives birth to two children, Yaakov, Jacob, and Esav. Esav goes on to become the father of Western nations, which becomes Christianity. So we see now how all of the world's religions come basically straight out of Abraham, which is pretty amazing. Um, but that was all just an overview. Now let's talk about this week's Parsha. So what we're trying to discover in this week's Parsha is who's going to be 
So the Torah was passed down from Avraham to Yitzchak, and then Yitzchak has two sons, and their names are Yaakov and Esav. And the question is, who is going to be the forefather? Who's going to be the the heir to this Torah of Abraham? Is it going to be Jacob or Esav? And let's let's learn a little bit about this week's parsha now. So the Torah says that when Rivka is pregnant with these with this child, she doesn't realize yet that it's twins. And she notices that these kids are a little bit schizophrenic. This kid is a little schizophrenic. Whenever she passes a house of monotheism, there were different monasteries set up by Shame and Aver, two descendants of, of Noah. And uh, whenever she passes one of these monotheistic um, houses of study, the, the child starts to jump around inside her stomach. She said, wow, he wants to go learn Torah. Then whenever she passes a house of idolatry, the child starts to jump around again. So she says, oh, he wants to do, go worship idols. So which is it? Is this kid a monotheist or is he a polytheist? So she goes to uh, the prophet, uh, to Shame, who was the prophet, and Shame says to her that there are actually two children in your stomach and they will both go on to become two different nations. And these two nations will be opposites from each other. And each, when one becomes great, the other will fall. They're literally opposite energies, these two children inside your stomach. So that's, that's interesting. Um, and then the children are born. And the first one to come out is, um, is Asaph. And Asaph is red and hairy as a child. And so they name him Esav, which comes from the Hebrew word Oseh, which means to do or to make, because he's finished, he's made, he's fully made, he's like an adult, he's hairy, like an adult, he's finished, but he's also red, which is interesting. Then comes out Yaakov, who is smooth-skinned, and he is holding on to Esav's ankle, and the word ankle in Hebrew is Akev, so they call him Yaakov which is related to the word of ankle or heel, which is interesting, okay? And the two children are born. And it says that the boys grew up, and they kind of went in different directions. It says that Esav became a hunter, and he used to hang out in the fields. And Yaakov was a very simple, pure man, and he basically devoted his, his time to studying um, Torah, the Torah that existed at that time, which is basically the teachings of Abraham and Shame and Aver, these different prophets. So he basically was a, was a monk. He, he stayed inside tents, and he didn't go out very much. And it says very strange that Yitzchak loved Esau. Esav's a hunter. He's, uh, Yaakov's very spiritual. For some reason, Yitzchak is attracted to Esav. And the Torah says because he was a hunter. And it says that Rivka loved Yaakov. We're going to look inside these, ver these verses much closer. But it's very interesting. Why did, why, did they, why did she love... Why did Yitzchak, who is the, the, now the leader of the Jewish people, why was he so attracted to Esav? Why did he love Esav so much instead of Yaakov? Then, um, 
we have a story that Yaakov baked, made a stew, a lentil soup. And Esav comes in from the field after hunting. He says, I'm so tired. I'm so hungry. Give me some of that red stuff. And Yaakov says, and it seems a little bit cruel, Yaakov says, I'm only going to give you this soup if you sell me the rights of the firstborn child. And so Yitzhak says, yeah, what do I need the firstborn for? I'm anyway just going to die. And he sells him his firstborn rights in return for this red lentil soup. And then from then on, they called Esav Edom, which means red. And it's kind of weird. The whole story is weird. Why did he want this soup so badly? Why did he call it red stuff? Why didn't he, like, find out what kind of soup it is? And why are they going to name him after the soup? Like, you know, like, now his name is Red. Because <laughs> he ate red soup one day in his life. So that, that whole story is a little bit interesting. And what does it mean to the, the rights of the firstborn, exactly? Then... Yeah, Yitzchak says, it's time for me, I'm going to die soon, and I want to give you a blessing, he says to Esav. He says, Esav, you are going to be the father of the, of the Jewish nation, and I want to give you a blessing. So go out and hunt me some, some deer, which I like so much, and uh, bring it to me so I can eat it and then give you a blessing before I die. And... So the question is, why does he need to eat food before giving a blessing? Like, just give a blessing. Like, Yitzchak is so spiritual. What does he need to eat? Like, like we like to go out and get, like, all-you-can-eat dinners and stuff. But Yitzchak, what does he need that for? And why does he need that for the blessing? And again, why does he want to give the blessings to Esav when it's pretty clear to anyone who knows Esav that he's not such a good guy? So Rivka overhears the story, and she says to Yaakov, Yaakov, you might have heard the story. She says, Yaakov, I want you to get those blessings instead. So she says, I'm going to dress you up like Esav. I'm going to make some dinner. It's going to taste just like deer. And you bring that to your father and pretend to be Esav. And Yaakov's like, how can I do that? I'm going to get, I'm going to get cursed. And she says, the curse should fall on me, my son. I take all responsibility for this. Go and do it. So again, it's really weird. Why does Yaakov have to go get these blessings in such a strange way? Yaakov, who's an honest person, the Torah calls him Ish Tam, which means a pure a perfect, an honest, a simple person. He's not a liar, he's not a trickster, and yet he has to go and do this trickery. It's so not like him to do that. And all, more so, think about it like this, right? Let's say you're Rivka. You're married to Isaac, and you notice that your husband is making a big mistake. What would you do, ladies? If you think your husband's about to make a big mistake. Tell him! Why doesn't she just say, like, Isaac, my husband, you're blessing the wrong son. This son is a bad guy. He's a murderer. He's a hunter. He does all sorts of terrible things. He's worshipping idols. He's not the right one. Why couldn't she just tell him? Okay, so he was somehow deceived, which we have to understand why, but why couldn't she just talk some sense into him? So she convinces her son to get dressed up and to trick him, and there's a famous line in the Torah, which we'll understand in a deeper level in a minute, that then Isaac touches Yaakov and, he, and Yaakov was wearing these sheepskin clothing so that he felt hairy and he says the voice is the voice of Jacob but the hands are the hands of Esau and like again now if you were Isaac okay and you were blind he was blind so he couldn't see who it was and someone comes to you and they've got your mother's voice 
But then you feel them and it feels like your father's clothes. What? Wait, who would you think it was? <laughs> would you be like, that's really weird. My father has my mother's voice. But it's wearing my father's clothes, so it must be my father. <laughs> what would you have thought? If a guy with Jacob's voice comes and uh, happens to have hairy hands, what would you think? Like, Isaac wasn't dumb, right? And yet he falls for, like, the like a really kind of, like, easy trick. So we got to understand that as well. Hopefully. Maybe. If we can. All right. And then, and then, so Jacob gets the blessings. And then he leaves the room and enter from scene. He exits on the left and enters from the right. Comes Esau with the venison that he hunted. And he gives it to Jacob. And Jacob says, who are you? He says, I'm your son. He's like, what? Then who was that guy? And he's like, oh no. And, and Esau says, give me a blessing. And he says, I'm sorry, it's too late. I already gave it to your brother. And what, you can't, a father can't bless all his kids? Why has he only got one blessing? What's going on here? Okay, are you guys ready to try to open this up as best we can? There were a lot of questions, okay? So we want to go through one episode at a time. And, oh yeah, one more question I have that I forgot to mention, is it says that the two sons, when they were in Rivka's stomach, were fighting. And Rashi points out they were fighting over the two worlds, this world and the next world, the spiritual world and the physical world. Why were they fighting over the two worlds? What would you say? There's two sons and two worlds. What would you say a good way to, 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 to come to terms here would be? Two sons, two worlds. What's the fight about? Yes, this world or the next world, the world of spirituality. Something like that, but, but again, think about it like this. There are two worlds and two suns. What's the best way to split it up? Like, why are they fighting? It's... Okay, but which, why is it so hard? Why can't they just play? Okay, you'll take one and I'll take the other. Like, what's the fight about? I'm not... What? The next world's better. It seems like the next world's better, but I'm not sure... The next world is, is the world of spirituality, but I would say that we have two kids. One kid's really physical and one kid's really spiritual. So just the physical kid should take this world, the spiritual kid should take the next world. Why are they fighting? What's the fight? Doesn't sound like there's much to fight about. And the last question is that it says that Esau essentially was born kind of bad. So it says. But that seems really weird because we have a rule that people are born. It's when a, Before a person is born, it says that there's a heavenly voice that decrees if you'll be rich or poor, short or tall, strong or weak, healthy or, or, or unhealthy, smart or stupid. But there's one thing that's not decreed at birth. Does anyone know what that is? Good or bad. That's totally up to, totally up to you. Totally up to you. So there's no such thing as someone who's born bad. No such thing. So what does that mean? That Asaph was born running after idol, idol worship, trying to get out at the house of idolatry. Doesn't make any sense. So... Okay, so let's start by analyzing 
um, the following verse. And uh, Daniel did this with me already, so he's not allowed to answer the questions. Is he still here? Oh, he left. Oh, he's still there. He's making dinner. They watch it with that knife. Um, okay, so I'm gonna. I just want to copy this this verse, and I want you guys to, to 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 read it and analyze it. Okay, you ready? Here we go. I'm putting it into the chat, and get ready to think a little. Okay, here's the verse. Asaph was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Yaakov was pure. He dwelled in tents of Torah study. It just says tents, but it means tents of Torah study. Yitzhak loved Asaph because he fed his, him game. And Rivka loves Yaakov. What are some questions, problems? Is there a paradigm here? Is there a pattern in the way it's describing both sons? Anyone? Any problems, any things that you notice that are interesting? And Daniel, if they don't get it, you're free to uh, help them. Asaf was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Let's let's. I want to simplify this for you, okay? There are two statements about two different kids, okay? Statement A says something about Asaf. And then something about Yaakov. Statement B says something about Yitzchak and something about Rivka. Okay? In statement A, it says Esav was a hunter. He was a pure man. And then it says Yaakov was pure. He was a man of the field, sorry. Yaakov was pure. He dwelled in tents. Okay, good. Good. So that's the first first piece, right? Asaph seems like he's a hunter. He's more physical. Yaakov is more spiritual. But if, yeah, keep going. Okay, but, but you're bringing in outside information. We don't know that yet. So I'm just changing the translation a little bit. It says, Asaph was a hunter. He was a man of the field. Yaakov was a pure man. He dwelled in tents. And I want you to guys to hone in, focus in on this, okay? Focus in on if the definitions, the way they're describing them, are parallel or opposites. Is the statement... The first statement about Esav, Esav was a hunter, does that equal Yaakov was a pure man? And is the second statement of Esav, he was a man of the field, does that equal the second statement about Yaakov, he dwelled in tents, or is there something off? Are the statements parallel? How are they opposites? I understand that the actions that they're doing are different, but I want to know the phrasing. Is the phrasing parallel or is it phrased differently for each one? Statement
So what is what do you mean parallel in their mission? Okay, okay, so you're going deep now. You're getting close to an answer, but I don't want to I don't want to jump too far. I want to stay with the text for just a second before we start philosophizing. And we are going to go there in a few minutes. Eleanor, so stay patient. But just look, Eleanor, sorry. Just look at again, just I'm trying to I'm not phrasing this well. That's why it's 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 not going so easily. Asov was a hunter is statement 1. What is that a st what is that explanation of? Yes. Well, I think the f field and tents are opposites. Fields outside, tents are inside, right? But but if you think about it like this, tell. Let's see if I can clarify this, because this jumped out at me. It really works more in the Hebrew. When you see it in the Hebrew, it's pretty pretty amazing that it's opposite statements. They're opposite orders. Asaph was a hunter. What's that explaining about Asaph? Bingo. Amazing. Sophie, welcome. You're invited to come back every week. Can we see your picture at some point? Want to know who we're talking to? <laughs> All right. So listen to what Sophie is, Sophie is saying. By Asav, it starts out by telling us what he does. Asav, what does he do? He's a hunter. Then it says who he is. He is a man of the field. That's the type of man that he is. He's a field man. What does he do? He's a hunter. Yaakov, on the other hand, it starts by telling you who he is. He's a pure man. And it says the word both in Hebrew. Ish, sada. Ish. Ish, tam. The word ish means man. He is a man of the field. Yaakov, on the other hand, it starts out by telling us what he does. He's a man who is pure. And then it tells us what he does. He dwells in tents. Now listen very carefully, because right here we're going to uncover the essence of what the difference is between these two, these two worldviews. Asaph, his, his focus on, on what he does, he's a hunter, and what he does defines who he is. He's a man of the field. Yaakov's focus is on who he is, on his essence, his internal character. And who he is then defines what he does. His actions are an offshoot of his essence, whereas Asav's focuses on his actions. Now look carefully at the difference between the statements of Yitzchak and Rivka. And tell me what the differences are. I'll copy them again for everyone. Yitzhak loved Esav because he fed him game, and Rivka loves Yaakov. What jumps out at you from the text? Okay, there are favorites, right? Parents shouldn't do that, but... Right, great. So by Yitzchak's love for Esav, why does he love him? 
because of something that he does. Rivka, unconditional. Not because of anything he does, because of who he is. Alright? One other thing that's blatantly different in the description. Think verbiage. Excellent. Yitzchak loved Esav. Why? Because what he did for him in the past. Rivka loves Yaakov continuously because who he is in the present. Yitzchak's love for Esav is conditional on his actions. Now, if we think about it, it fits perfectly into the ideology of the Western world versus the ideology of the Jewish world. But let's go to one more story, and then we'll try to expand, expound, expound on all of this. So Yaakov makes a stew. What's up with that stew? Why is Yaakov making a stew? So we try each week to teach a mitzvah. So the mitzvah that I wanted to talk about this week was the mitzvah of morning rituals. Right? Mike just got up from Shiva. And I want to share a little bit about um, the Shiva experience. And maybe, if Mike, if there's time at the end, you could tell us a little bit about the experience for you. But there's a very interesting custom that when a mourner comes back from the burial, there is a meal, traditional meal, that's served at the home of the mourner. And this is called a Sudas Havra, which means basically a healing meal or a recovery meal. And according to Jewish law, this meal is supposed to be cooked by other people. You're, the guests, the, the neighbors or the family is supposed to cook for the mourners. So the mourners come home, they're not supposed to eat their own food. And there's different explanations given for that. One is that when a person's in grief, they might not want to eat. And therefore, the neighbors come to tell you, you got to eat. We're, and another reason is because person is in a distraught state they're going to be alone so we want them to know you're not alone the whole the community is here for you we're taking care of you all right and uh there there are a few other explanations given another explanation i saw is that the mourners might be so in grief that they might actually want to drown their grief by overeating and that's another thing we don't want them to do so we want to stay with them when they eat so what is the does anyone know what the traditional food given at this meal is Excellent. Bagels are not traditional, but they serve the purpose. So people eat bagels and not lox. They could have lox, but bagels and eggs. Eggs are traditional. Talmud says eggs. Talmud says something else. Lentils. And the Talmud actually says that this meal that was taking place at this moment was because Abraham passed away at this moment. And Yaakov was preparing lentil stew to serve to his father. And Esav comes into the field and he says, give me some of that red stuff. So what do all these foods have in common? Bagels, eggs, and lentils. It does. They're all round. Sophia, you're hired. Sophie, sorry. <laughs> so they are round. 
So what is the symbolism of something round? The circle of life, the cycle of life that we talked about last week, the idea of a wedding ring. A wedding ring symbolizes that the marriage is not just in this world. The marriage is in this world and the next world. It's a, a, a bound, a bind, an eternal bind. Bound, bond, an eternal bond, right? Because that's what marriage is, is it's forever. It's not just in this world. It's not till death do us part. It's in this world and the next world. And that's the idea of a circle. A circle has no beginning and no end. A circle goes on forever, represents eternity, infinity. And that's the message that we say to the mourners. That's one message, is that life is just a cycle. We come into this world, we're born, and everybody leaves this world. So on one level, it's a message that says you're, this is universal. You're not the only one suffering, although it feels mourning is so painful and a person feels so alone. But one of the messages I shared last week was that one of the ideas of the whole Shiva period is that we let you know that even though you feel very much alone and you are alone because no one really can understand what you're going through, but you're alone with everyone else. We're all alone together because we all go through it at some point. It's a universal experience. Death is a universal experience that we all have to go through. And that's message number one. But message number two, perhaps more profound, is that we don't believe that death is an end. Death is just a transition to another state, and it's a cycle. It's a cycle of birth and death and rebirth, and that there's an, a, a spiritual reality, and that soul is going to possibly come back into this world, and if not, they're going to continue to live in another world. That death is not the end. It's just a transition to another state of existence. So that's the first message of the lentils and the eggs. Eggs has an additional message, which is that eggs themselves represent what? Life, right? Eggs represent life. So that's another message. But Rashi points out a, a, another perspective, which is that circles have no beginning. And the way the Talmud describes a circle is that a circle doesn't have a mouth. Like a square or a rectangle, you could say has a mouth. It has like a corner. It has an edge. But a circle has no mouth. And the Talmud explains that just like a circle has no mouth, no beginning really, no opening, so too a mourner has no mouth. They, they can't speak. And one of the laws that we learn in the period of mourning Mike, what's one of the laws related to not having a mouth, a mourner not having a mouth? One of the specific laws about Shiva. If a person goes to a Shiva house, and there's a specific law related to a mourner not having a mouth. Great. That's that's it. That's it. You're not allowed to... Yeah. Oi. Yeah. It's, it, how does it feel when someone asks you, how, how are you? 
Right, right. Because typically when we say, how are you, what does everyone say? Fine, thank you, good. Baruch Hashem, thank God. You know, Chorosha. Right? Like, that's what you should say, by the way. But, um, but when a person's in mourning, the answer is not good. The answer is not thank God. The answer is, this stinks. I'm in pain. Don't ask me how I am when the answer is obvious. So Rashi says that a mourner doesn't have a mouth because they are in shock. They don't have the ability to speak or to comprehend what's just happened. And a part of them feels like this is really bad. Because they think it's really bad, we don't ask them how they are. Because the reality is, is it feels bad, but it's not bad. Because in Judaism, we believe that everything that happens to us is good. We just don't see it, especially in those moments of tragedy. We can't see it, and therefore we don't ask. But there's a blessing that a mourner makes on the day of a funeral, or when they find out that someone passed away. There's a blessing which we make, which is Baruch HaTashem. We make a blessing. Baruch Dayan HaEmes, the true judge. Because even though it looks bad, we believe that what God does is just and right, even though we might not get it. And the Talmud says that when a person makes that blessing, they're supposed to make it with the same level of joy and faith as they would if they just got good news. And and, and that is extremely hard to do, right? So, so on one hand, we recognize in the morning rituals that life is a cycle and that there's good in this experience. And on the other hand, we recognize that the mourner might not see it right now and they don't have a mouth. They don't have the ability to comprehend it, to express what just happened. So it's two, side, two sides to the cycle of life. But that was the, uh, that was the mitzvah side of this discussion. Um, any questions on that, by the way? So Asaph comes in from the field and he sees Yaakov preparing a mourner's meal of lentils. And Asaph says, give me that red stuff. And we've got to understand, why does he call it red stuff? Why does he want it so badly? Asaph doesn't seem like the vegetarian type. He's a hunter. Right, Yaakov, I could hear being a vegetarian, eating lentil soup, but at the end of the day, what, what's the big deal? And then Yaakov kind of tricks him. He takes advantage of his hunger and he says, give me the birthright. I'll give you the soup if you give me the birthright. What is the birthright? Why is that so important? So the idea of the birthright is it's basically the legacy. The firstborn child is supposed to take on the legacy of the mission of, the, of being of the Jewish people. And Esau says, what do I need this legacy for? I'm anyway going to die, he says. What do I need it for? I'm going to die anyway. Essentially, Esav reveals his worldview is, what do I need this, the, the spiritual obligations that come along with being the firstborn? The firstborn is supposed to be the priest of the family, essentially. And Esav says, I don't need that. I'm going to die anyway. Esav's worldview is very simple. Eat drink and make be be merry for on the morrow we die life is going to end i don't want to eat these lentils because of a morning ritual i don't care i don't see this cycle of life i'm not interested in the next world i just care about this world right here that is asav's message why is he attracted to the red stuff whatever we'll go into it later but essentially the red represents Gevura, strength, 
fire. Asaph is born with a fiery nature. And whatever, we'll get to that in a second. Last point. They come to get these blessings. And Asaph says, Yaakov goes to dress up like Asaph. And 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 I and and Yitzchak says when he gives the blessing when he feels him he says the hands are the hands of of Esav, but the voice is the voice of Yaakov and right here we have the message that sums up the whole discussion so far. Esav, what does Esav mean? No, Edom means red. Esav means done. From the word to do or to make. Esav represents the hands. Yaakov represents the voice. The voice of prayer. Esav is hairy. Hair represents physicality. right? Men are more hairy than women. Animals are more hairy than people. Because it represents physicality. Esav represents the physical world. He's not interested in the next world. He's interested in this world. He wants to eat the stuff based on how it looks, not on what it is. Esav defines himself by what he does, not on who he is on the inside. Esav views the whole world as conditional to get me what I want. If you think about it, when we, when we, this is in our experience, the Western world, and it sums it up perfectly. When you go to a party, what's the first thing people ask each other? <laughs> after they ask where's the liquor when they introduce themselves to each other after you ask for the food hi nice to meet you my name is Jack what's the next question hi Jack what do you do oh <laughs> Jack says Jack says I'm a doctor I'm a lawyer I'm a computer programmer, if you're Russian, right? That is essentially what we, the way we view the world is I am what I do. And that's the way the Western world views us. Our worth is in what we produce, what we do. And essentially what we're asking is how much money do you make? How important are you in the world? That's who I am. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. No, you're not, says J Jacob the Jewish worldview, you are a human being. You're a human, you're a Jew. You have a mission in life. You have an essence. You have a soul. You are a soul. Your soul has a body. You're a soul with a body, not a body with a soul. Right? That's who you are. Who you are is who you are on the inside. What you do can be circumstantial, can be to make a living, or it can be an expression of who you are on the inside. Right? Asaf sees the world as a dichotomy. There's the physical, and there's the spiritual, and they have nothing to do with each other. Yaakov sees the world as a net nexus, as a coming together of spirituality and physicality. That's the way Yaakov sees the world. So now, let's tie it all together. So that's essentially the battle that's taking place in the womb is over the two worlds. Why Isn't it simple? Just say, Esau gets this world, Yaakov gets the next world. The answer is, is that Yaakov realizes that there's no such thing as the next world without this world. You know what the next world is called in Hebrew? Olam Haba, the world 
that comes. What does that mean? It's the world that comes from this world. This world, the Talmud says, is the, is the dressing room to prepare for the next world. If you don't go through this world, you can't get to the next world. You need to go through the world of physicality to get to the world of spirituality. You can't have the next world without this world. So now, if we put everything together, let's try to understand what's going on here. Why does Yitzchak love Esav? Why doesn't Yitzchak get that Esav is, 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 is too stuck in physicality? So I believe the answer is as follows. That Yitzchak, we explained, comes from the spiritual side of Gevura, of strength. Yitzchak himself, we know, goes into fields. We just learned in last week's Parsha, he prays in fields. Yitzchak has a connection to the field, and the field in, in the Torah represents a place of, of struggles, a place of work, a place of separating the good from the bad. That's the job of Yitzchak, to go out into the ground and dig through the ground to find the water, to find the spirituality that's hidden in the physicality. Esav, if you think about the mission of Avraham, what did Avraham bring to the world that was so unique? The idea we said, said many times, the idea of bris, which is connecting spirituality with physicality, that our relationship with God takes place where? The bris, which represents our government, in the most physical part of the body. That it's through physicality that we connect the spirituality. That's what was unique about Abraham's mission. Before Abraham, that we said they were prophets, shame, and Aver, they had their own yeshivas, their monasteries. They believed in spirituality, connecting to God by disconnecting from physicality. Comes Abraham and Judaism and says, no, we connect to God through physicality. That's the way to become spiritual, is by connecting to the physical in a spiritual way. So if that's the mission of Avraham, so according, we, we know that a person's not born evil, but we, say that, we see that Asaph had temptations from birth to do the wrong thing. He had a bloodlust. That's why he was red. He was drawn to the lentils because he connects to the color red, which represents blood. He had a fiery temptation. He was he had basically hot he was hot blooded. He's drawn to murder. He's drawn to violence. What does that mean? So no one's bad from birth. It means that he was born with an extra dose of inclination to do the wrong thing. Which well lots of people are we're all born with different temptations. We're all born with different temptations. On the other hand, Yaakov He's simple. He's pure. He has no desire for any of this physical stuff. He just sits in tents and meditates and learns Torah all day. He's not, he doesn't have this inclination. Now let me ask you, who is the more likely forefather of the Jewish people? Which one? Esav or Yaakov? Who, who does it make more sense to give the birthright to and give the blessings to? Who's going to carry on the legacy of Avraham? Esav, who's engaged in the physical world, or Yaakov, who's disconnected from the physical world? What do you say? Well, why, why Yaakov? But remember, remember what's unique about Judaism? Not the spirituality. It's a combination of both. So who has the potential? See, according to the Tanya explains that if a person is born without desires, so that means they're cold-blooded by nature, 
So they're, they don't have so much spiritual potential. If a person naturally likes to do the right thing, I don't know if any of you are like this, naturally wake up on time without an alarm clock, naturally don't like to eat cake, naturally they don't like to speak badly about other people, naturally they don't like to waste time or procrastinate. You know anyone like that? Like nerds, right? Anyone here a nerd? Don't be embarrassed. We all wish we were like you. But according to Hasidus, a nerd, as wonderful as they are, they never do bad things, they're not getting so much reward for not doing bad things. The reward is according to the struggle, the effort. A person who's born naturally drawn to doing the wrong thing, when they, they overcome that, have so much more spiritual potential. A person who's hot-blooded by nature has the ability to overcome and transform that hot-bloodedness to become spiritual fire. So according to this, who has the most potential here? Esav or Yaakov? Esav. Esav has the potential to be on the highest spiritual level. He just has to overcome his nature. He has to control himself. Right? Oh, that's, that's an interesting discussion. Not Dina. Uh, Dina, well, actually Leah. Leah. Esav was supposed to marry Leah. And Yaakov was supposed to marry Rivka. Wait, hold on, hold on. We'll get to that. Just hold on, hold on. We'll get to it. So Dina was Leah's daughter. So so now, so Esav has the potential to be incredibly spiritual if he learns to overcome his nature. That's number one. He has the ability to transform his red, bloody nature into spiritual fire, passion. Number two, Esav is involved in the physical. Yaakov's disconnected from the physical. Which one of these makes more sense to take on the legacy of Abraham? The legacy of Isaac? The mission of Judaism is to connect to spirituality through the physical. Not by disconnecting, but not by meditating in a monastery all day. And being disconnected and celibate. So Esau is the natural future leader of the Jewish people. Because he's going to go out into the world. He's going to teach Torah to the masses. And the, the Talmud explains that, that Esav was a hunter. He wasn't just a physical hunter. He had incredible charisma. He was an amazing orator. And he could persuade people. He could, he could tra entrap people with his words. He had the ability to trick people and convince them of stuff. So Ace, it was meant to be a partnership. Esav was supposed to be the number one guy to go out and inspire the world and bring them to the tents of Torah where Yaakov would then teach them about the spiritual side of things. But Esav was really supposed to be the leader of the Jewish people. He had that potential and Yitzchak saw that in him. Yitzchak was attracted to him because Yitzchak also come from the side of red, from the side of fire, of Gevorah. Yitzchak also understands that, that battle of going out into nature and digging to find the water that's buried underneath the surface. He wants Esav to bring out his potential, which is a greater potential than Yaakov. But Rivka realizes that it's too late for Esav. She sees that Esav's not going to be able to overcome himself. So why doesn't she just sit down with her husband and have a conversation? Because she realizes that Yaakov has to become Esav. In order for Yaakov to become the father of the Jewish people, he has to become Esav, to take on the role of Esav. He has to get the hands of Esav. Yaakov, who's a pure and honest person, has to learn how to lie. 
he has to become a trickster. He has to go into the world of darkness, the world of physicality. Not only does he have to lie to his mother and deceive his his father, he has to also go and then in next week's parsha and live for fourteen years with his uncle, uh, for I think twenty one years with his uncle Lavan, who is the greatest trickster and swindler of all time, and learn to to become a trickster. To learn to be, and he learns to navigate the physical world. So now he can become the father of the Jewish people. To not just be a simple guy who doesn't have challenges, who just has no interest in eating cake or talking gossip or looking at the wrong things. Yaakov has to learn to live in the world. Now he can be the father of Jewish people. Because the message of Jewish people is not to be spiritual in a tent, it's to be spiritual in the marketplace. There's once a story that the that the Vilna Gon, who was the greatest rabbi of Vilna, Lithuanian Jew, Jewry, of a few hundred years ago, he one time called in a rabbi who used to travel around from town to town. And basically what people used to do for entertainment in the old days, in the Jewish world, is they would hire a Magid. A Magid is a storyteller, who would, uh, like itinerant preachers who would travel from town to town. And they would come into a town. Instead of going to the movies on a Saturday night, People would go hear this Magid speak, and the Magid would basically tell people what they were doing wrong. That's what people did for entertainment. He would come and he would chastise the community. You guys are not praying properly, and you guys aren't giving enough charity. And that's what people did for fun, is they wanted to self-improvement. So one time the Vilna Gon calls in this famous Magid, this famous storyteller, preacher, who was called Dubno, Dubno Magid, and he said to him, I want you to give me musr, which means I want you to give me tell me tell me what I'm doing wrong, criticize me, tell me where I can improve myself. And uh, the Magad said, "How can I do that? You're the greatest leader of the whole world, Jewish world. How can I tell you? That's so it's so chutzpahdik. Uh, that's not. I don't have the audacity to tell you what you're doing wrong. How can I say that? You're perfect in all your ways." He says, "I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong." And so the Magad said, "Okay." He said to him, I can't tell you that you're not praying enough or that you're not learning enough Torah. You don't sleep as it is. I can't tell you you're eating too much. You hardly eat. I can't tell you that you're disrespectful to other people or to your family. You're, you, everything you say, every word is measured and perfect and pure. But I could tell you one thing. You think you're so great sitting here in, in, in the synagogue praying and learning all day? Who says you'd be able to do that if you were out in the marketplace? He says, it's not so special to be holy if you're not exposed to all the challenges of the world. He says, who says, and he says a word in Yiddish, Yiddish said, who, say, who says it's such a kunz? That means like a point. Who says it's such a point? Who says you're really doing something so great studying all day? It would be so much greater if you could keep that spiritual level while getting a job and working and spending time amongst the, the simple people and the challenges of life. So the Vilna Gon responded to him, who says life is about doing something unique? Maybe life is about doing the best you can with and avoiding challenges. But that's a different discussion. But truly the Jewish response is that the goal, and perhaps this is maybe the Hasidic debate, the Vilna Gon was against the Hasidic movement. The Hasidic movement says that it, it is about going into the marketplace. Because God doesn't want to be revealed in synagogue. God, God is already revealed in synagogue. 
God doesn't want to be revealed in heaven. God is already revealed in heaven. God wants to be revealed in the world, in the challenges of the world, in the darkness of physicality, because there he's hidden. And that's the job of, of a Jew, is to reveal God in the darkest places, through the challenges of life, through eating, working, taking out garbage, doing dishes, changes, changing diapers. Those are just things that were on my mind right now. Um, through the challenges of raising a family, through the challenges of making money, and doing it honestly, and doing it spiritually, and making time to pray. Yitzchak started the prayer of Mincha, which is a prayer that's said in the middle of the day, before sunset, or at the time of sunset. And they say that that's the greatest challenge. It's not so hard to pray first thing in the morning. You wake up, you're fresh, take a few minutes. It's not so hard to pray right before going to bed. But to pray in the middle of the work day, when you're involved in so much stuff going on, so many challenges, so many fears and worries, and to take time off then to be spiritual, that is the goal. And that will infuse the rest of your day with spirituality. So, in summation, wow, we're over time. Let's conclude. So, so the battle between East and West is the world about what you are on the outside or is it about who you are on the inside? Is it about enjoying this world because tomorrow we're going to die? Or is it working on yourself in this world because tomorrow is going to be the eternal world where all you'll have is your spirituality. All you'll have is the work you've done on yourself. That's what you get to keep in the next world. So use this world. Don't avoid pleasures. Enjoy pleasures, but enjoy them for the right reason of building yourself spiritually. And Judaism says it's all about eating, right? We eat all the time at every possible uh, possible t moment we eat, right? Just look at every rabbi you've ever met. And <laughs> they have to... Uh, do a little more exercising, a little less eating. But Judaism is all about eating and enjoying the world, but it's about doing it for the sake of a mitzvah, for the sake of connection to spirituality, which we'll talk about other times, how to do that, and we've talked about it in the past. So the females of the Jew, the foremothers see through the surface to recognize who's supposed to be the heir of the Jewish people. Abraham wanted Yishmael to be the forefather of the Jewish people. Sarah said, no, it's Yitzchak. Yitzchak wanted Esav. Rivka said, no, it's Yaakov. Because it's the mother's ability in Judaism. It's not a coincidence. Judaism is passed down by the mother. right? Judaism goes through the mother's side. Whether you're Jewish or not, it has to do with your mother. Because the mother gives over that essence. She has that, it says, a woman has, has an extra ability, insight. Extra and extra uh, intuition, a woman's intuition. She has the ability to see what's really going on under the surface, and the the foremothers had the foremothers had a higher level of prophecy, and that's why the forefathers had to listen to their wives. And any man who wants to be successful in life has to learn to listen to his wife. So, they the just to sum, summation. The two brothers were fighting over this, not over which world, who's going to get which world, and not over both worlds. Esau was very happy with this world. Yaakov said, no, I want both worlds. Because he realized that there's no next world without this world. And Esau could have been the father of the Jewish people. He could have gone out into the world, brought people back, brought them to the tents of study. Jacob would have taught them Torah. But Esau, his temptations were too great and he failed. But temptations 
are the greatest gift. And I want to sh end with this last point. Let me just see if I answered the main questions. Hold on one second. Um, I think we answered most of the questions. So now I want to end with the last point for you that I, I was meeting with uh, one of my clients today, a therapy client, and I have a few clients a week, and he uh, is struggling with depression. And he said that, I said, you know, what's, what's your biggest concern at work? He's very overwhelmed at work, a lot of anxiety, depression and anxiety, a lot of anxiety at work. He feels like he has to be the best. I said, what does it mean to be the best? He says, I don't want to ever make any mistakes at work. I want to be performing at a 10 out of 10 every single day. I want to make all my sales. I want to be the best employee. I want to have a, a, a an amazing day every day at work. And I said to him, so, so what's the definition of success? He says, success is to perform at my best 100% of the time. So I said to him, do you think other people are doing that? He said, I don't know. I'm assuming they are. I said, see, that's your problem. Your definition of success is wrong. If you have a flawed definition of success, we are certainly not going to be happy. It makes sense why you're depressed and anxious all the time. So I brought out of him eventually that the definition of success, I said, what's the real definition of success? I said, you're wearing glasses that say I'm not good enough. And therefore, for me to be good enough means I have to be perfect all the time. I think success means to be per perfect. So... Instead, I said, success, what does it mean if you fail? What does that make you? Makes you human. Because everyone fails. Nobody is performing at a 10 out of 10. Everyone has some good days and some bad days. Everyone makes some sales and loses some sales. We all do that. That's what it means to be human, to have successes and failures. What the difference between a success and a failure is the person who defines themselves by their failures. If you say, I failed, therefore I'm a failure, and therefore I'll fail forever, that means you've just failed because you failed to recognize that failure is the greatest lesson. Because when you fail, it's an opportunity to learn and to grow and to improve yourself. If you take advantage of opportunities of failure to improve, so then you are a success every single day. Every time you fail is an opportunity to prove that you're a success. How? By learning and trying to do better next time. The difference between, I said, so the, the definition he came up with at the end was that a true success is someone who tries their best. That's what it means to be a success. Try your best and let Hashem do the rest. We got to do the best we can. The best we can means not always doing the best we can, it, but it means that when we don't and when we don't do our best or when we fail, we just have to learn from it and get back up again. That is the message. I forgot how that ties into what we were talking about just now. But um, I honestly really, really just did forget how that ties in. But I thought it was a great message. Anyway, does anyone know how that ties into what we're talking about? Oh, temptations. Yes, exactly. That we are all born with all sorts of flaws. We're born with all sorts of temptations in the wrong direction. Don't think that makes you bad. That makes you human. And that gives you potential. And all those areas of flaws and weaknesses are the greatest strengths. Because that's the place where we can change and transform ourselves. The goal of life is not to be perfect. The goal of life is to be better today than we were yesterday. I'm wishing you all a beautiful Shabbos. And uh, 
we should have a life of growth and and an upward trajectory. <laughs>